Welcome to Season 4 of A Shot in the Arm podcast. I'm your host Ben Plumley, and this is a podcast about global health and human rights. Now, we're recording this podcast in October 2020, a very peculiar time, as the pandemic, coronavirus, COVID-19, starts its second and indeed third waves. What is this going to mean for vaccines and what does it mean for the protection we need to provide people right now, right around the world? Well, these and other questions we're going to cover in this season. And as with season three, I'm delighted to say that this podcast is produced in partnership with the Bay Area Global Health Alliance, an ever-expanding group of companies from biotech and tech, universities, non-profit organizations and community-based organizations, all committed to improving the health of people around the world. Now, you can find out more about them at www.bayareaglobalhealth.org. In this episode, I'm absolutely thrilled to be able to be talking to Dr. Tony Fauci, who is the director of the National Institutes of Allergies and Infectious Disease. He is the world's, certainly the Americas, infectious disease specialist that we all turn to, we hang on his every word as we learn more and more about this pandemic, with maybe one or two exceptions of people. But anyway, it's a real privilege to have him on the show. Dr. Tony Fauci, welcome to a Shot in the Arm podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Now, first question, got to ask. These are crazy times. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing fine, uh, I believe. Uh, you know, it's a very, very hectic and very stressful. Uh, you know, it's a seven, f truly a seven day a week job. And yeah. I don't want to be hyperbolic, but it's you're talking 16, 17, sometimes 18 hours a day. So I'm doing fine, thank goodness. But uh, boy, I sure could use some sleep. <laughs> <laughs> so look, you, you are... Um, so well known in the infectious disease field um, and HIV particularly. We've, we've worked with you, we've talked with you, we've heard you. Um, uh, but uh, some people, even in the public health field, um, perhaps aren't so familiar with who you are. Um, and then at the beginning of this year, as COVID-19 emerges, you assume this almost larger-than-life profile. Could you just tell us a little bit about who you are about uh, NIAID. Yeah. Well, I'm the, I, ha I wear a few, a few hats. I'm, I'm the director, my primary job is as the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, which is a very large institute, the second largest institute among the 27 institutes at the National Institutes of Health. We're located in Bethesda, Maryland, just about five miles north of Washington, DC. I have been with the NIH and with the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases for my entire professional career following my training in internal medicine in New York City at the New York, New York Hospital Cornell Medical Center. I'm an infectious disease person, but I'm doubly trained as an internist, as an infectious disease specialist, and as a clinical immunologist. My, my hats include directing the institute, but also I run a laboratory here at NIH that is involved predominantly in delineating the immunopathogenic mechanisms of HIV infection. Mm. Uh, I also am a clinical physician. I still see patients mostly 
HIV individuals, but we have been experienced with others, including Ebola and immunodeficiencies, and most recently, COVID-19. I've got to ask you, how many, how many presidents have you actually served under? I've actually served under and advised personally six presidents beginning with my appointment in 1984. I've been the director for 36 years. I was appointed during the Ronald Reagan administration, and I've had the privilege of serving and advising Reagan, George H.W. Bush, Clinton, George W. Bush, President Obama, and now over the last almost four years, President Donald Trump. And that sort of brings us to this, this moment. Here we are in October 2020. Um, COVID-19. Um, in, in a sense, we've been preparing for this. In a sense, we haven't. Um, but we've learned so much about the science in the last 10 months from realizing that this was not just a respiratory disease, it had multi-organ impact, that whole fatigue, brain fatigue, um, brain fog uh, sort of syndrome, the role of young people and, you know, to the global health field, this fascinating observation that lower and middle income countries seemed not to be as badly hit as the more industrialized world. And I, I just wondered what really stands out to you from a scientific perspective that has perhaps, say, surprised you about SARS-CoV-2 over these 10 months? I know, Ben, it, it, it's multiple things. I can give you one or two that really stand out, but there are so many things about this complicated uh, pandemic which as you well know, is historic in its proportions. We have not seen anything with this great an impact as a respiratory borne pandemic in the 102 years since the 1918 so-called Spanish flu. One of the things that I think is important, uh, and it also is the, is the reason why there's such misunderstanding, particularly among young people, about the ultimate seriousness of this outbreak. I've, as you know, I've been chasing viruses, as it were, with outbreaks ever since the very, very early years of HIV. I've never seen an infectious disease that has this broad range of manifestations from anywhere from 40 to 45% of people without symptoms to those who have symptoms, maybe 80% of them have only mild to moderate symptoms that doesn't even require medical intervention to about 15 to 20% of people who have severe, if not critical manifestations. And they are usually, not exclusively, but usually the elderly and those with underlying conditions. And in the United States, about 30% of our population has an underlying condition that would predispose you to a serious outcome. So we have on the one hand, people who get infected and get no symptoms and think it's just a trivial disease. And on the other hand, we now have 214,000 deaths in the United States and 7.7 .7 million infections. Globally, it's over a million deaths mm. and about 34 or 35 million infections. So it's a extraordinary outbreak with multiple consequences. You've mentioned a few of those that are also somewhat perplexing in that even with people 
who get infected have mild to moderate symptoms. They may or may not have necessarily been in the hospital, who when they recover virologically, namely they're no longer infected, they have a prolongation and a lingering of very troublesome symptoms, sometimes for weeks, if not yeah. months, and maybe longer, you know, fatigue, um, muscle aches, shortness of breath, uh, dysautonomia, which means body temperature issues. Um, what you refer to, which is a real phenomenon, they call it brain fog, yeah. which really means they have a real difficulty in concentrating, that they, they, they're in front of a computer and they can't stay at it for any more than a short period of time. That's disturbing. We're also starting to see that in, even in young, healthy people, that there's this subclinical indication of inflammation in the heart. There've been some MRIs in people who've recovered that show a substantial percentage have at least radiographic uh, indication of inflammation, not necessarily mm. clinically recognizable, so it may turn out to be nothing, but it also may turn out that months, if not a year or two from now, you'll start to see cardiovascular clinical manifestations that weren't there from the beginning. So there's a lot of puzzling things about this very, very unusual virus. So it, it's it's sort of, I'm, I'm loath and almost frightened to ask the question, but once we have the vaccines, do you think we will return to a pre-COVID normality or, or are we going to have to adapt somewhat like people in Southeast Asia did after SARS with regular mask wearing? Uh, that, that, that life after COVID-19 is going to be very different. Where do you sit on that sort of uh, the two sides of those that coin? I think that with a vaccine that's reasonably protective, um, we will begin to approach some form of normality when we actually get back to the pre-COVID normality, if we ever do get there. I think there'll always be the lingering concern about how you can best prevent the transmission and acquisition of a respiratory infection. Will we adapt the way many of the Asian countries do, more regular wearing of masks? I'm not sure. What I think is gonna dictate how quickly and how completely we get back to the normal that we would like to get back to would depend on A, how effective the vaccine is, and B, how many people choose to get vaccinated. If you have a 90 plus percent, which I hope we will, I don't. I doubt that we'll be that lucky, but if we do <laughs> have a 90 plus percent effective vaccine and 85 to 95 percent of the people get vaccinated, we're gonna get back to normality within a year or more than a year, but we'll get back there. If you have a 70% effective vaccine and only 50% of the people elect to get vaccinated, it may be quite a while before yeah. we can really get back to normal where you can go into a theater at full capacity, or you could go to a sports event at full capacity, or you could go into a crowded restaurant without limiting the capacity. I think that'll be a while before we get there. I, I want to come back to vaccines in a minute, if I may, but uh, and, and I know we're in the heat of an election, so so keeping personalities out of this. Um, but there's a core strategy question I, I've been really wanting to ask you. The US, by choice or by accident, uh, appeared to take largely a decentralized approach to f combating COVID, particularly through the states. And we've seen 
other countries, New Zealand, Germany, others that have taken a more centralized approach. And while, you know, you could say there are issues with both, the virus doesn't know any national boundaries or a centralized approach doesn't take account of local differences. What is your view on, on really what is the most um, appropriate uh, balance between a centralized and, and local approach? You know, that's a great question. And I think it really is um, influenced in the answer by the differences from one country to another. Like a country that is uniform in its demography is different than a country that's so heterogeneous like our own. Mm. A country that's an island with easy capability of restricting travel versus a very, very large, physically large and population large country like the United States. Cultures are different. There are some countries when the central authority says something, everybody does it. That's very more characteristic of some of the Asian countries than countries in the West. In the United States and to some extent in the UK, um, people don't like necessarily to be told what to do. They tend to push back on that. Mm. However, when you're dealing with a pandemic that doesn't know demographic or geographic or cultural differences, it's just uniform for everyone, I would think that if you lean more towards a centralized approach, albeit giving states and regions some degree of flexibility that it is better than just saying everybody do what you want to do because you're independent you know our federalism is a positive thing and it's gone a long way in a positive way in our country but sometimes when you see what we've seen and, and i think the data and the reality speak for themselves when we were trying to open up the country again after we shut down a bit uh, we said, here are the guidelines. You have a, a, a gateway, you have a phase one, a phase two, a phase three. If you do that prudently and carefully, you'll be able to open the economy without necessarily having a resurgence. Could it we work out that way? No. That was the problem. No. There were some states that jumped over the, the, the benchmarks that went from gateway to phase two. There are some that just skipped right through. And then there were some states that tried to do it correctly, but the people in the states pushed back. Mm -hmm. And you've seen pictures in the media of people in bars, crowded, congregating near each other with no masks, indoor, a perfect setup for transmission and acquisition. And yet, even when the states say, don't do it that way, people have done it that way. So it's a complicated situation. That's that I guess is part of the sort of Anglo-American culture, isn't it? God help us. But I wanted to talk about vaccines. Um, obviously, we just had the news uh, from Johnson and Johnson about uh, a halt in their uh, study, but that and, and that follows, of course, the AstraZeneca. But but nonetheless, this has been an extraordinary mobilization, um, and. Um, as you know, we make this podcast in association with the Bay Area Global Health Alliance. Um, and I've had a flood of questions from, from folks to, to put to you about the vaccine strategy. Um, and one from Mary Pittman, who I think you know, she's the chair of the Alliance and 
the Public Health Institute, uh, I think a really important point that you know there is a tension between going too rapidly with a, a vaccine developments uh, trial that excludes black and brown people. Um, and then when we get approval, given that we haven't studied the vaccine in those populations, we're going to have an issue with uh, engaging them and encouraging them, uh, particularly after the history of, of, uh, of concern about uh, medical interventions in those communities. How do we overcome that, do you think? Well, I, I think there are two uh, separate issues that I'll quickly address the first one. It's the speed issue, Ben, where people see that we've done things in months that usually take several years. That is not to the extent, to the expense uh, of safety, nor does it compromise scientific integrity. It's just utilizing the extraordinary scientific and technological advances in vaccine platform technologies, where you could take the gene of the virus stick it into a platform and you could start producing and testing in literally in a couple of months as opposed to a few years. That's one thing. So I don't think people should be concerned about the speed because the speed is A, utilizing technological advances and risking money, but not safety or scientific integrity. But the other point that you make is a really good point. And that is, that minority populations, African-Americans, Latinx, Native Americans, Alaskan-Americans, Pacific Islanders, clearly they have a greater incidence of infection and a much greater degree of the comorbidities that are responsible for a poor outcome with COVID-19. So they are the vulnerables. Yeah. Therefore, you've got to make sure that when you get a safe and effective vaccine, that you get it equitably distributed to them. But before that, you've got to make sure they're represented in the clinical trials so that when the clinical trial is shown to be safe and effective, you could say, based on data, that it is safe and effective in African-Americans, in Latinx, and in other minorities. So what we're trying to do with a considerable effort, we haven't been as successful as we want to be, is to make sure that the enrollment in the clinical trials is representative of what the demographic distribution in society is. We're doing quite well with Latinx. I mean, we're right, right up at the trials around 17 or so percent, 18 percent Latinx in the United States. We need to do a bit better with African-Americans. We're approaching 10 percent, even though 13 percent of the population is African-American. So we need to keep pushing the envelope to get minorities into the clinical trials. And it seems to me there's there's uh, lessons from HIV here as well. I mean, one of the other questions that came from uh, two friends of mine at Google, Karen DeSalvo and Hima Bujiraju, were that, well, what happens if we prepare for one vaccine and it's not good and we need to go to another? Well, we've been doing this in particularly the HIV treatment really since the start. And, and, and I guess... Uh, the big question I, I, I really wanted to ask you about this was around trust. And part of what you're doing is having to reassure society that this is okay, that the science is being followed and this isn't being rushed for political or other reasons. And, and I just wonder how your, well, what your approach to building trust is. Well, uh, you know, it gets back to what you were saying, Ben, back way back in the 80s when we engaged 
the activist community and the community in general with regard to clinical trials of drugs and vaccines and prevention modalities is that you have got to reach out to and engage the community. You've got to do it yourself up front in a very transparent way, but you also got to get community people who the community trusts and can relate to and can identify with and get them to explain in a very clear way why it's important to get people engaged in the clinical trial process. You've got to build up the trust that you're talking about. It doesn't happen overnight. And there are good reasons, particularly among minority communities, for a reluctance to give full trust. I mean, it is very difficult to erase the history, and it should never be erased because it should be stood up as an example of what to avoid of the mistreatment of minority populations by the federal government in the arena of clinical trials. I mean, the most egregious of which we all know is the Tuskegee experiment. Yeah. And you can't talk to an African-American group about engaging in a government-sponsored research program without Tuskegee coming up. And you've got to convince them that that was then and this is now, and now is really, really different than back then. And, and the world, again, not to dismiss this in any way, the world has changed. I think some of the creativity that has emerged during this lockdown period has been extraordinary. And uh, I wondered if you don't mind if I just share a very, very short video with you. Um, sometimes people call me the Forrest Gump of, of, of global health because I'm sort of, you know, all over the place. Uh, and I happen to be chair of the MTV Staying Alive Foundation. But when shutdown hit... Uh, a group of the um, uh, crew and actors in Southern Africa and Western East Africa made these really short TikTok videos. Um, and uh, what an incredible way of, of uh, communicating about COVID. But let's just see if we can, can catch just a little bit of it. We're in the middle of a pandemic. A once in lockdown package. There's other stuff I could do online that people would pay to see. Like what? That beauty lessons. Oh my gosh, somebody actually sent me a picture of this. Oh my gosh, really, really, oh, disgusting. Yeah. <clears throat> Obviously, we're on lockdown. He's at home, thinking of many ways to be a new stand. Phone calls at work, but I miss being with him physically. I bet you do. <laughs> we will make up for last time soon. <laughs> I can barely remember what day it is. That go to with the young one, you see, once, once, once again, I scam. <coughs> People are out here walking around like they don't care, like they're not affected. Forget social distancing, rather, they're socializing. Okay, so I was at a party last weekend and Fana's girlfriend asked me if she could use my very first lipstick and I said yes, and now it turns out she has COVID. See, I just love that. Um, it just shows you the way in which cell phones are used across Africa and that young people use them to educate. No, that's really very impressive. Yeah. So uh, if I may, I, I wanted to turn to Guam, um, uh, the, the territory of Guam. 
Um, obviously, after the USS uh, Theodore Roosevelt um, disembarked uh, because of an outbreak of COVID, an informal group of us got together to support the governor, Leon Guerrero, and Lieutenant uh, Governor Tenorio to try and strengthen an already stretched public health um, uh, system. We had the University of Guam work with the University of San Francisco on test and trace. We are trying to work with the hospitality industry to try and strengthen the kind of support to people who've been post-test, post-tested and post-traced. But it's been really difficult. And um, I, I, I guess... To your point earlier about what you can do in a small population, an island, the population of 170,000, we should really be able to, you know, somewhat like Bill Gates does, throw everything at it and show that we can, uh, that we can combat um, uh, SARS-CoV-2. Um, and and I would be remiss if I didn't make a plea to uh, to you to take back to the task force not to forget not to forget Guam but also to think you know what sort of creative waves we can do to build a scientific and operational research program to prove the case that we can turn this around yeah no I'd be happy to do that in fact we're we have a weekly governor's call uh, from the task force and the governor of Guam is is consistently on that call yeah, and she was uh, she was infected earlier on. She and and uh, Josh Tenorio are doing okay now. Um, my final question, I know we're coming up to time, is really about US CDC guidance, or, or perhaps the absence of, and um, and I know that CDC, but on test and trace, which is something that's I think really at the heart of you know, that contribution that the HIV community is making to the response to COVID. Um, the information, the guidance on to, to people who have been uh, traced but uh, don't have symptoms is to, is to just self, self-isolate, self-quarantine. And we don't seem to be giving any guidance to them on what they should should do. And I'm um, working with a small group of uh, IT management experts, uh, uh, Gulf Coast DevOps, to try and find out ways of getting cheap automated telephone calls or SMSs just to check in on people. Do they have food? How's their health? How's their mental health? And, and I just wondered, what do you think we can do more for those folks? And there's going to be plenty, plenty more of them now who have been traced and been told to uh, self-quarantine, but whom we don't really have much to offer at the moment. Yeah. Are you talking about people who are self-quarantined because they're suspected of being infected or who are documented to be infected? Suspected. Um, and, and more people who have been known to be in contact with people right. who have yeah. uh, Well, contracted. you know, the CDC guidelines, I, I agree with you, Ben, that we need to be a bit more explicit about how we can help people, even though a guideline might write something down, more often than not, people, human nature, they read it, they they forget it, they don't understand it. Uh, it's gotta be very clear that if you are exposed to someone for more than 15 minutes, six feet from someone with documented, that you should get tested. And even if you're negative, you should quarantine yourself for 14 days or if you have an essential job that you've got to get out for, 
even though you're negative. You should go out, wear a mask, keep distance, wash your hands, and if you're symptomatic, get out of society. And the reason we say that is because sometimes there's a massive amount of people who are in close contact with an identified person. And by keeping everybody under wraps for 14 days, you can immobilize some very important functions in society. So get tested 14 days if you can do it. If you have an essential job, do it in a way where you wear a mask, wash your hands, keep your distance, and make sure that if you do get symptoms, you get out of society. So I, I know we've come to the end of our, our, our time. Just just one final question to you. Um, you know, we have a lot of public health heroes, and I think you and I share one in the, he's going to kill me for saying this, the gorgeous Peter Staley. Um, and, and I know that he's had a huge impact on you. The late Marty Delaney also did. But uh, this has been, I guess, a really tough time on you, on your fam you and your family. Um, but it's also gone from the sublime to the ridiculous. Uh, you can find Tony Fauci face masks. There are Tony Fauci action figures. I mean, for God's sake, there's even to Tony Fauci bed linen. And I just, I just sort of wonder, how do, you, how do you cope with this? How do you make sense of this? Well, then you can't make sense of it. It's just something that is a sociological phenomenon that I think dates, relates to people needing to grasp onto something that's true and honest and real and consistent um, when you have such devices and they've latched onto that and I become a symbol. Uh, I I don't pay attention to it to the point of it distracting me. I have a very important job and a mission. So if that's what's going to go on, it's kind of amusing to a certain respect, but I don't dwell on it. You know, I don't sit down and take a look at bobbleheads. I, I spend my time, I spend my time doing what we're doing right now, trying to get a good message out. Well, which is a huge relief to know, but, um, but look, Tony, Thank you so much for giving us this time. Um, you are doing possibly the most important job, I think, in, in human society at the moment. And I say that as someone from a, from a, a, a public health field. Um, we've got your back. And of course, uh, whatever the public health community can do to support you, you know you only have to ask. Thank you so much for being on a Shot in the Arm podcast. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me and, and, and good luck. And uh, it, it's very nice of you to have me on the show. I enjoyed it. And say hi to all my friends out there in San Francisco, will you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that, thank you. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you to Dr. Tony Fauci. Oh my God, Tony Fauci. We had Tony Fauci on a Shot in the Arm podcast. Thanks also to Sarah Anderson from the Bay Area Global Health Alliance. Thanks to Eric Espera, our producer and director from NewsDoc Media, and thanks to you. And of course, if you've got any questions, any thoughts about this or other episodes or subjects we should consider covering, don't hesitate to contact us. You can find us at Twitter at ShotArm Podcast or on Facebook at ShotArm Podcast too. So it just remains for me to wish you a healthy and a safe week. And uh, don't forget to wear that mask.